listening to the Northside Christian Church Sermon Podcast. These teachings are recorded at our weekly Sunday morning gatherings in Springfield, Missouri. For more about our church, service times, and how to connect, visit northsidechristianchurch.net. Today, I just want to be up front that we're going to be dealing with a very difficult subject today. But I also want you to know it's not going to be without hope. We've entitled this series, Hope in the Face of, and we've been dealing with a lot of difficult things, whether it's death or affliction or grief or loss or doubt. We're hitting all of them, but we called it Hope in the Face of because in Christ we know that no matter what we face, we can face it with hope. We should have hope. And today is no exception because today we're going to talk about hope in the face of suicide. I know that this topic hits close to home for many of you. Uh, We have some very dear and precious families in our church family right here, right now, who have been affected by this. And I had even reached out this week to several of them knowing how hard this can be. Yet we're talking about it because it's something we desperately need to talk about. We need to have conversations about this. I also want you to know as hard as it is to talk about it, we're going to have people available, some professionals available to talk to you at the end of my message today for anyone who might even personally be struggling with this in your own life or perhaps someone you deeply care and love is struggling with this. We want to have help available to you so you can talk to someone because this is something that many are struggling with. In 2021, 48,183 people died by suicide in the United States. In 2021, right here in the United States, there was one death every 11 minutes due to suicide. 12.3 million adults seriously thought about it. 3.5 million made a plan. And 1.7 million adults attempted suicide. And those are just the ones that we know about. Males make up 50% of the population, but nearly 80% of the suicides. We know that the suicide rate increased 37% between 2000 and 2018. Then it decreased 5% from 2018 to 2020. And then since that time, it has gone back up to peak levels in 2021. It just completely amazed me to read this statistic that suicide is currently the leading cause of death for young people ages 10 to 24. Approximately two out of every three young people who have suicidal thoughts never get help. It's a disease. Suicide is a disease that is killing people. It's not a fringe issue. It's affecting many of us. But it's also a complicated issue. There's so many different factors and and causes that can weigh into this. Uh, One can be a biological cause because of chemical imbalance or hormonal changes. Or it could be postpartum depression or things like that, which is... Why we see doctors prescribe medication, whether it's antidepressants or anxiety meds or mood stabilizers, that can be helpful in moments like this. But that's just one tool in the toolbox. And often we fight this battle with things like medication and counseling and relationships and listening to the Holy Spirit and investing into deep relationships. Those things are so critical as we go through this, as as we deal with suicidal thoughts or Suicidal ideation. 
There's even relational causes that come into play, whether it's divorce or rejection or loss of relationships with family or with children. It it can be also feelings of loneliness or isolation, toxic relationships, abuse. All of these things can factor in and contribute to this. There's circumstantial causes. Anyone who's lived on earth knows that we live in a fallen world. We we feel the effects and results of a fallen world, which means you're going to experience pain of of losing someone that you love and prolonged sickness and job crisis and financial crisis and physical exhaustion, hard transitions and stressful situations. All of these circumstances can be something that impacts our thinking and affects suicidal thoughts. It can be spiritual attack. We know that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And those dark forces want to steal and to kill and to murder and to destroy anything that God holds special and valuable. And you matter most to God. And so we know that the spiritual forces of evil will come in to attack us. Even Judas, who betrayed Jesus. Judas, who hung himself. We read in the text that Satan entered him. And Judas may have had some cooperation in this, but Satan entered him. And his death was the result of a spiritual attack in his life. Substance abuse can affect this. Substance abuse with drugs and alcohol can play a significant role. And these things tend to exacerbate mental health issues and leave us vulnerable. When you're under the influence, then you are not going to make good decisions. You are not in your right mind in that moment. And we know for a fact that substance abuse or addiction or drugs or drunkenness affects these moments when we're not thinking as we should. And then there's just mental struggles. And this is such a wide variety of things, but mood disorders and schizophrenia and anxiety disorders and certain personality disorders come into play. Our own negative self-views affect us when there's a loss of identity and I don't know who I am. When there's a loss of belonging, I don't feel wanted. I feel unwanted and I don't feel accepted. That can play a role. When there's a loss of purpose and I feel useless, purposelessness, These things can affect, and all of them combined can lead someone to hurting themselves. But often, it's when it's stopped in that moment, they realize they don't really want to hurt themselves. They just need someone to be there for them. Depression. Depression can be a a significant factor. It can hit anybody at any time. It does not discriminate. So if you feel somewhat proud that, well, I've never battled depression, don't be. Don't think you're more spiritually mature than someone else because they battle depression and you don't. That's not how it works. Depression can come from many ways, many factors. But sometimes it just happens and you're in this cloud and this fog and this funk and and you want out, but you just can't get out. You don't even know why. You, You don't even realize what's happening. All of those things play a role because life can be so hard, circumstances so crushing, pain so deep, you just find yourself in a fog with no way out. And unless someone takes you by the hand and leads you out of it, you feel like you're stuck. You're exhausted. You're tired. You know, in First Kings 19.4, Elijah, he wanted to die. He was so alone. He was so afraid. He was so beat down. He just wanted to die. He wanted to die. It's estimated that 15% of 
of the adult population will experience depression at some point in their lifetime. It's the leading cause of disability worldwide. It's, it just envelops a person. They can't see through it. And they turn inward and they become self-absorbed and they become isolated. And, and they want to snap out of it, but they just can't. And that's so hard because sometimes someone's going through it and you don't even know it. You don't even realize it. And maybe today for you personally, you could use some help coming out of the fog today. Maybe for you personally, you have been battling and dealing with thoughts of personal harm or suicide. You've had suicidal ideation going on in your own heart, in your, in your own spirit. Or maybe today, through talking about this, as we talk about this, perhaps you could be the one that could take someone by the hand and help them come out of theirs. So today, I'm going to invite you just to listen to a story of Todd Wickman. Some of you know Todd, member here at Northside, has been here for years. Todd is going to share his story with you today. A story of a time when he was so close to losing his life to suicide. And I want you just to listen to him. Give your attention to the screens. I'm Todd Wickman. I'm 60 years old. And the story I'm about to relate happened in 1998 when I was 36 years old. I was in the midst of a drug addiction that uh, was affecting my family. Um, my wife wanted to end our marriage, didn't want me to see our kids. We were going to be moving to Missouri in December, and I was, this, I was living in Wisconsin at the time. And it was life. My life was just falling apart with, with uh, of my own doing of my drug addiction, and you know it was wrecking our finances, wrecking our relationship. And so I, uh, uh, my wife told me that uh, she wanted a divorce, didn't want me to move to Missouri with her, but still wanted me to sign the paperwork for the house we bought. And I was beside myself. I wasn't staying at our home at the time. I was staying with my mom and dad. And deer season was coming up, the opening day of deer season uh, was Saturday. And I remember on Thursday and Friday, I, I said goodbye to everybody that, uh, that was near to me in, in a way, the way that they didn't really know that I was saying goodbye. Come, uh, Opening morning, I was going to climb into my deer stand, and I was going to kill myself. I still had some cocaine left, and uh, we drove out to the hunting property. I walked up to my stand, climbed into my stand, and it was very, very cold, and it was snowing. And I just remember the snow coming down and landing all over me, and sitting in the stand crying for a little bit. And then I reached into my pocket and I pulled out the cocaine and I was going to do the last of it and then kill myself. So I opened up the little packet of cocaine, leaned over to do the last line, and the snow fell off of my hat, landed in my cocaine, and dissolved. And I was like, well, I'm not going to get to do my last line. I'm just going to kill myself. I took my deer rifle... And it was a gift from my grandfather. It was his deer rifle. And 
when my granddad quit hunting, he gave it to me, and I was 16 years old at the time. And he had just passed away the August previous to this deer season. And uh, I took that his gun, and I put it in my mouth, and I reached down to pull the trigger, and I heard his voice, his same cadence, exactly how he sounded. I heard him say, Todd, don't do it. And I remember pulling the gun out of my mouth, and I remember the skin sticking to the end of the gun. And I was looking around like, what happened? And about that time, the biggest deer I had ever seen to this point came walking by, and I shot it. And that I ended up not killing myself. About a month or two after I almost pulled that trigger, I uh, I hadn't really told anybody about this incident, and I was I told my brother about it. He has a tree stand about a hundred hundred and fifty yards away from me, and I was telling him about it and. The, the response I got from him was not what I expected. I expected him to tell me, oh, I'm so sorry, or have some sort of empathy for me for what I was going through. But his response was anger. And, his, and I was like, I, I didn't know what I was going to do to him because he said, if I'd have heard that shot, I'd have thought you were shooting at a deer. And I would have waited a while, and then I would have gone over to see what you got. And he said, and then I would have found you. And that just tore my heart out because I didn't think about what I was going to be, how I was going to be leaving everybody else. I just was thinking about myself. Fast forward a little bit, I told my wife at the time that we were, um, that I was not, I was going to try to get clean. I was going to Missouri uh, if I wasn't signing the papers unless she let me come to Missouri and, and live together as a family. So I moved to Missouri, and at the time I did, I did pretty well for a while, and then I ran into some people at work. So anyway, that, I ended up about to lose my marriage again, and I was distraught. And I, I just decided I needed to check into a rehab. I was going to lose my family. I mean, my wife w w kicked me out. I had already gotten an apartment and signed a year lease on it, so I w uh, she wasn't planning on having me come back. I had nowhere else to go but to rehab and I went into rehab and I they gave me a bungalow and my bungalow was just outside the chapel and I remember the second night there I was I, was, I mean I was about ready to give up I didn't see the point in living anymore and I, I walked out at 3 in the morning and walked into that chapel and there's Bibles all over the place. I picked one up, and I was just thumbing through it, trying to find 
little themes to that would help me with what I was going through, and I just was crying out to God, you know, help me, help me, you know, save my marriage, save my, save my family. Um, and shortly after that, I just felt a presence and a warmth that just washed over me, just filled me. I believe it was the Holy Spirit, and from that point on, I didn't. I, if I knew that if my marriage didn't come back together, if my if my if I was no longer part of the family in that in the sense that of a of, of the dad of the husband and wife, that I knew that things were still going to be okay, that I was going to get through this, um, no matter how this turned out. We ended up going through with the divorce, but. There was just, I just, I just have to say that I thought that my life was over. I thought that everything was, there was nothing that, I almost, I almost did a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And that's what it was, it's temporary. Today I've got my, my kids, I've got a, I've got a marriage I've got God that any time that I'm having issues, I rely on him. I can call on him. And I've got my grandkids that none of this I would have had if I'd have pulled that trigger back in 1998. I can't say it if anybody's contemplating suicide. It's just temporary. I know it doesn't feel like it at the time, but don't. Make it permanent. Just as Todd says, don't force permanent consequences to a temporary problem. Know this that your emotions are valid, but they're not permanent. Your emotions are valid, but they're not permanent. Your situation may feel hopeless, but with Christ, there's always hope. With God, there's always hope. Even when you don't feel it, even when you don't see it, there's hope. David writes Psalm 31 from a place of deep distress, deep despair. And we don't know his specific situation or exactly what all is happening in his life as he writes us, but he's struggling and he's hurting. And his words are so raw and so real and so honest that many others in Scripture would allude back to the Psalm 31. They quoted it as well. Like, for example, Jeremiah, he quotes it six times. If you know what Jeremiah went through in Scripture, you know, he went through some hard things. Jonah quotes this Psalm from inside of a fish. Paul quotes this Psalm. Jesus on the cross quotes verse 5 in this Psalm. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Stephen, the martyr, the first martyr of the church, dying for his faith, is quoting Psalm 31 when he too says, I commit my hands, I commit my spirit into your hands. So Psalm 31 verse 9 begins like this. David says, be merciful to me, Lord, for I'm in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and body with grief. My life is consumed by anguish and my years by groaning. My strength fails because of my affliction and my bones grow weak. Because of all my enemies, I am the utter contempt of my neighbors and an object of dread to my closest friends. Those who see me on the street flee from me. I'm forgotten as though I were dead. He feels rejected and shameful and unwanted and isolated and from friends, from people. 
He says, I've become like broken pottery. He feels useless, purposeless. He says, for I hear many whispering, terror on every side. They conspire against me and plot to take my life. And I just think, how tragic that there are so many people who have had these same emotions as David, and yet they suffered silently, secretly, internally. They don't want people to know. They don't want people to be, feel put out. They don't want to get this out, so, so they just suppress it and hold it in. But David doesn't. He is lamenting. He's expressing his hurt and anger and frustrations and fear and his pain out loud and specifically to God. I don't know, do you know how important this is? How valuable this is to express your pain and your hurt to God? It's one of the best and most important things you can do to share your struggles with God and with God's people. We need to do this, to let it out. And David is showing us in this psalm how we can worship and pray our way through intense pain and suffering and tragedy and struggle. He's giving us language for crying out to God in these moments. And there's a reason why this is so important. And even as David does it, I mean, you can see both both agony at the same time that you see trust. And you can see distress while at the same time he's putting his hope in God. You see both at work. And this is what David does in verse 14. He says, but I, I trust in you, Lord. I say, you are my God. My, my times are in your hands. Notice, his times are not in his own hands. He says, God, my times, they're in your hands. God, you're the author of time. And the years that I get to live on this earth, they're not up to me. My times are in your hands. In some ways, it could be said that suicide is an attempt to steal away time from God's hands. The one who gives us life and, and the one who sustains us. And of course, in doing so, we also steal time away from others in our life who care deeply about us. In verse 5, that David wrote, Into your hands I commit my spirit. God, my, my, my life, my spirit, my soul, it, it's in your hands. In verse 15, he's saying, my, my times, my circumstances, God, they're in your hands. So both my time and my life, my life and my times, they are in your hands, God. I'm entrusting this to you. Even though I don't understand it, I don't know what's going on, I'm, I'm going to entrust this to you. And so he keeps praying and he says, deliver me from the hands of my enemies, from those who pursue me. You know, sometimes we can be our own worst enemy. We need saving from ourselves. Let your face shine on your servant. Save me in your unfailing love. Let me not be put to shame, Lord, for I've cried out to you. But let the wicked be put to shame and be silent in the realm of the dead. Let their lying lips be silenced, for with pride and contempt they speak arrogantly against the righteous. How abundant are the good things that you've stored up for those who fear you, that you bestow in the sight of all those who take refuge in you. David says, God, how good are the things you've stored up? God has good things for you. You may not see it right now. He has good things for you. He has a plan and a purpose for you, not to harm you but to bring you a good, to bring you a future. He's got things stored up for you. It's like what Todd said. Just, just imagine, had he pulled the trigger, the things God had stored up for him. 
He mentions his marriage and his children and his grandchildren and something else he talked about that we don't have time this morning to get into, but but it also gave time for him to come to know Jesus Christ as his personal Lord and Savior. When Todd was baptized on January 2nd of 2005 by Ed Holt, our former lead minister here at Northside, it was on that day he, he received life. He would have missed out on all of those good things that God had stored up for him. David goes on to say, Praise be to the Lord, for he showed me the wonders of his love when I was in a city under siege. In my alarm, I said, I'm cut off from your sight, yet you heard my cry for mercy when I called to you for help. Love the Lord, all his faithful people. The Lord preserves those who are true to him, but the proud he pays back in full. Be strong and take heart, all who hope in the Lord. Put your hope in the Lord. Simultaneously in this psalm, we see him feeling cut off and feeling heard, feeling despair and finding hope in the Lord. Hope in the face of whatever he was going through. And what I want to do today, and I'm going to have to do this very quickly because of our time, but I want to move quickly through just how do we address mental anguish and suicidal thoughts and and suicidal ideation? How, How do we deal with this? And let me just share some things. It's going to be, the conversation will be way broader than we have time for today, but let me just share a few things. Number one, take your laments to God. Take your laments to God. Lamenting to God in your anguish gives you an outlet for your emotions. And by lamenting to God, we see that you receive his mercy. And in receiving mercy, you even find as you lament to him a higher perspective. And you can begin to realize you have one you can lean on and cry out to and trust in. And it makes a difference. When we're depressed, we have this tunnel vision and the problems are the only thing that we can see. We tend to only see the facts that discourage us. The negativity becomes pervasive and it overwhelms us. We need a higher perspective. We need to take these laments to God and get it out and bring it to him. We're desperate to do it. Cry out to him and receive his perspective. Number two, we need to make relational connections with others. This is so important yet hard because when we're depressed or anxious or struggling, we don't like being around other people. We withdraw, we pull away, we suffer silently, and then we lose our support systems that are around us that we need. And this is where we all, we all can help those who are struggling, those who are in this room, those listening right now. This is when it's so important that we listen, that we recognize the warning signs of those dealing with suicidal thoughts when they're withdrawing and depressed and deep anxiety, they're losing interest in things or in people's words or worlds. They, They feel like no one notices. They feel like they don't belong. They don't have a purpose anymore. We need to listen to that. And in those moments, we need to reach out and proactively ask them how they're really doing, not accepting the first answer that they give. How are they really doing? Digging deeper. Asking the next question. Ursula Whiteside, who's a psychologist and a faculty member at the University of Washington School of Medicine, she says simple acts of connection are powerful. Looking out for each other in general reduces suicide risk. She says because people who feel connected, they're less likely to kill themselves. And the earlier you catch someone, the less they have to suffer. That's when they desperately need someone to take them by the hand and help lead them out of the fog. This is when we know that someone is suicidal. We listen and we're supportive and and we don't act shocked in that moment. 
We encourage them to share honestly and openly and let them know this is a safe place to talk and it's okay to talk. And we invite them to say more. And then we're quiet so they will say more. Because not everybody who's having suicidal thoughts are in an immediate crisis or emergency that they're going to harden themselves. They just need someone to listen in that moment. So to show up and to be available. And of course, as we talk, we never, let, we never allow ourselves to be sworn into secrecy that we're not going to talk to someone if they are, in fact, a threat to harm themselves or others. So we do need to evaluate in those moments, what is the risk right now for them? There's a, an acrostic that was shared with me called SLAP. Uh, I added an S at the end, SLAPS, because I think there's one more thing we could use. But maybe this helps you remember it or not. I don't know. Um, but the, the S would be specificity. And when someone expresses thoughts of suicide, like how specific is their plan? Is it just thoughts? Do they know how they're going to do this? Do they have a specific plan for do that, doing this? The L is for lethality. How can this plan work? Is this method lethal? Is there a plan in place that we obviously should be concerned about? Availability. Does he or she have access to carry out their plans? And if there's access, we need to be immediately taking steps to remove access to that plan to the best of our ability. Proximity. Are they able to execute their plan? And if so, can we change the proximity to that? And then I've added S, and so I'm not a professional, but this is something even as I'm talking to people, I'm weighing what's the strength of the desire? The strength of the desire in that moment. Is this something from long ago? And almost the feeling still come. Is, is there a strength in the desire? It helps us to know the next steps because someone who has the, the strength of desire and these other issues are in place, they are at high risk. And when that is the case, we immediately got to involve others to help. We're not wanting to be well-liked in this moment. We're, we're wanting to help someone whose life needs to be saved. And so at times in these moments it can be appropriate to call 911 because in our community, the ER can be an entry point to end treatment programs. That's the entry point. And so when there is high risk, the ER is an entry point to end treatment programs through Mercy and Burl and Cox North through their treatment programs. And when they're full, clients can be transferred to places like Nevada Regional Medical Center or to Joplin. This is those moments when we involve parents or family members or medical personnel and counselors and spiritual leaders and directors in their life. This is when we come together and we're all involved together to help show someone love and support and help. We come around them because our goal is not to be liked in that moment. Our goal is to get them help. Safety plans, contracts, in writing can be helpful. If there's someone that's opening up and they're communicating with you, even written contracts is even proven to be more effective than oral, verbal contracts between people. 
And so a contract for life might look something like this where it just says, and they fill this out and we practice it and we, we train and we talk about this. You know, I so-and-so promise to not harm myself or attempt to kill myself. If I feel like killing myself, I will call blank at blank. And if I'm unable to reach him or her, I will call the crisis hotline at blank and speak with a crisis worker, signing it. Now, I know this isn't fail-proof or foolproof in a moment when someone's not thinking clearly, but this has been proven to be helpful for someone who's wrestling with this to, to have a plan of action in a moment when they know they're not in a good place, in a dark place, and they're not going to be making the right decisions just to do what it says to do. Third, I think something we can do is we can serve someone else. When we invest in others, we get ourselves back in the game. We get involved in the lives of other people. We start living out our God-given purpose in this world. And if we can come alongside one and help them serve others, it can be helpful in their journey. Number four, seek professional counsel and listen to the right voices. Seek help from professional counselors, medical professionals. That's not shameful. That's helpful. We need those counselors, those professionals. We need friendships. We need spiritual leaders in our life to all come alongside of us to help us come out of our crisis. Number five, I'd also say this. We need to learn from the stories of others. When we hear the stories of others, we learn. We are impacted. You cannot listen to Todd Wickman's story and not be moved and impacted and learn from that. There's so many other stories, different stories, different outcomes. You know, on November 23rd, 2021, Northside hosted the funeral for Matt Brown. Matt had been a Springfield police officer for 21 years. He taught at the academy. He was a department spokesperson. He was a detective, a hostage negotiator. He was a lieutenant colonel. He had a 25-year career with the Missouri Army National Guard. And Matt tragically died from suicide. Matt's wife, Kelly, their three children, devastated. His, His brother, Mike, and his wife, April, and their family, which they've been members here at Northside for many years, absolutely devastated. All of their family, their friends, their their co-workers, their acquaintances, this community was absolutely devastated. And I was just amazed at the funeral here, at at his celebration of life, to be sitting in a seat out here just like you are today. I was amazed at the grace that God gave his family and friends and acquaintances to get up and to speak, not only honoring and celebrating his life, but also sharing helpful words because of what they were going through, impacting words. I remember Matt's daughter, Bailey, and her words. Bailey is Matt's oldest daughter, now married and a child of her own. And I want you just to hear today Bailey's insight into this desperately needed conversation about suicide. And I'm not going to be able to play even a fraction of all that she said, but it's just going to be a small part. But I want you to hear her words because we can learn and we can hear and we can grow in this. And so give your attention to the screens. The only way I know how to carry out his legacy is to love my children like he loved us. 
and to continually advocate for mental health. My dad was burdened with demons from a traumatic past. His mental health and his self-worth were rock bottom. It is hard to understand how someone who loves you so much could leave you, but my dad was very sick. When he felt that he had hurt us beyond repair, he dissociated and convinced himself that his death would hurt us less than any hurt he would cause us while being alive. But that could not be further from the truth. I, we, are utterly heartbroken. I would take him at his worst any day before I would want him dead. For many years, our family has struggled and wrestled with pain. We tried so hard to help him while also trying to heal ourselves. Very few people would have known by looking at him or his family, and it is true that you really do not know who among you is really suffering. By that measure, there are people listening to me right now who may be thinking about suicide. If there is anything that you take from all of this today, let it be this. Don't. Don't do it. This pain is indescribable. Believe me when I say my dad's mistakes have hurt me deeper than anyone else has ever hurt me. But even in that hurt, I would never choose this. This hurts so, so much worse. My daddy deserved life. He deserved reconciliation and a life where we figured it out and we would have figured it out. You deserve life and you deserve to be well. You are loved even when you think you aren't. When my dad decided to end his life, he thought he was thinking clearly. He genuinely thought that it made sense. If you ever find yourself in that position, I promise you, you are not thinking clearly. Please just call someone, let them speak truth to you. If my dad could sit here and see what he had done, he would ask himself what the hell he was thinking. This is the last thing we would have wanted for us. You have options, you have resources. There are people in your life and professionally who want to help you. There is no shame in sharing about your mental health. Please tell someone when you are struggling. In my dad's line of work especially, you are trained to be self-sacrificing in order to do hard things. Trauma has a way of messing with you when you think you're tough enough to handle it alone, but you don't have to. There is a much larger conversation to be had about these things, but if anything about my dad's life and death has made an impact on you, please consider that you may be being drawn into a greater purpose. We have to destigmatize mental illness for everyone and especially for service members. And if you find yourself in a position of leadership of any kind, I encourage you to think about how you can carry on this conversation and provide the support that others so desperately and often silently need. Finally, I want to make this clear to anyone who, anyone here who loved my dad and has regret in their heart, because I too struggle with regret. I wish I would have told him more of the things he loved to hear, and I've wondered if I had done more or less of certain things if we would be here today. Please know that nothing you did pushed my dad to this point. No one is perfect and no friendship is perfect, but please take it from someone who knew him. The kindness that I know each of you showed him is all that he needed. He has been made whole. God has given him the wisdom and understanding that surpasses this world. 
I know it is easier said than done, but there's no reason to worry about something left unsaid. I find comfort in knowing that he knows now. He truly knows how much love we had for him, and he gets to spend eternity in that love. There was just so much insight in Bailey's words. The pain of ending one's life is far greater than any pain caused in this life. We want to be tough enough to handle it ourselves, but we can't. There are people in your life personally and professionally to help you. Regrets and being filled with if-onlys, it's, it's often futile and hurtful. You are valuable. You are loved. So don't suffer silently and don't do it. When we hear the stories of those who have experienced this, we have so much to learn and to grow from. One of the things I'm often asked in moments like this is just biblically, how do you respond? How do you respond when someone has committed suicide? What do you do? Sometimes the family's concerned about even their eternal future. What happens when someone kills themselves? What happens when they die from suicide? They're concerned about their future, what this might look like. And, and then can, can we celebrate? Can we celebrate their life? Or can, what, what do we remember? How do we approach it? And I just want to quickly touch on this. First of all, I would just say to every person listening today, the most important thing we do today is believe in Jesus Christ, that he is Lord and he is God. And we repent of those sins and we be baptized into Christ. Because in so doing, we are in his family. We need to make that decision now. Do not put that off. We want to make those decisions so we're in a right relationship with him. That's so we have his hope. The hope of eternal life. From what I understand of Scripture, I also just want to say this. It does not appear that suicide, suicide is not the unforgivable sin. No single act is unforgivable. As Hank Hanegraaff points out in the Bible Answer book in volume 2, the unforgivable sin is a continuous ongoing rejection of forgiveness of Jesus. And those who refuse forgiveness through Christ, they'll spend eternity separated from His love and grace. But those who sincerely desire forgiveness can be absolutely certain that God will never spurn them. Some are concerned, well, they they didn't confess their sin. But the fact is, none of us have confessed every sin of, of omission or commission to God. Baker and Esther state, if salvation depended upon confessing every sin committed as a, as a believer, no one would qualify. We've all sinned in ways. We either were not aware of or we were not concerned about enough to confess individually. We are saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. Ephesians 2.8. One sinful act does not define us or remove us from grace. And yet having said that, your life is evidence of what you truly believe. And it, it's a heavy thing to enter into eternity in willful rebellion against God. Only God knows the heart. And I'm going to come to that here in just a moment. But sometimes after someone has committed suicide, we then, I'm asked the question, how do we remember their life? What, what do we do? Well, we're free to celebrate and remember their life, not focus on their death. 
And I think we have an example in Scripture. David's response when Saul committed suicide. In 1 Samuel chapter 31, Paul, excuse me, Saul, this is a different Saul than who became Paul. Saul is in battle. He's defending the Israelites from the Philistines. He's wounded. He's injured. He's hurt. He's now being surrounded. And they're closing in on him. And he's fearful of what's to come. And he takes his own life. He falls on his sword in that moment. It wasn't that Saul was seeking death. Instead, he was seeking relief from the pain and the terror that was all around him. And I would imagine that the person you love that was seeking relief from whatever pain and terror was their own reality was probably feeling some of those same emotions. And none of us can know for certain exactly what that struggle was like for them. But as we turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 17, after this happens, David writes a lament for Saul and for Jonathan, and he instructs the entire nation to be taught this lament, to sing it and to share it. And in this lament, he chooses to remember Saul's life, not his death. He celebrates the good things about him, not focusing on the bad or on his final act or final decision. God gives us permission to honor and celebrate the life of your loved one. We have a gracious God who does not judge us based on one moment or one act in life. He looks at the person, not just one act. As a result, we can honor our loved one in the same way by remembering and celebrating their life. Saul and Jonathan's lives were not defined by just one final act at the end, nor should we define our loved one's life by one final act. Just because someone has suffered suicide. Just because someone perhaps even made a bad decision in that moment, in a vulnerable moment, a sick moment. It does not negate the good that they have previously done. We can celebrate their life and continue to do that. And then number three, I just want to say this. We would not dare contemplate it ourselves. Hank Hanegraaff says, our lives belong to God and he alone has the prerogative to bring them to an end. Deuteronomy 32, 39, see, now that I myself am he, there is no God beside me. I put to death, I bring to life, I have wounded and I will heal. No one can deliver out of my hand. Suicide is the murder of oneself and it violates the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. Suicide is a direct attack on the sovereignty of God, the one who knit us together in our mother's wombs. Suicide is murder. It's attacking the image of God. And suicide is horrible. And it's not only a sin, but it's also a sin that leaves wreckage and devastation all over the place. Therefore, we know suicide goes against God's sovereignty and the sanctity of human life. Suicide causes grief. It not only destroys the person who takes his or her life, but it plants the seeds of destruction in the lives of those around him or her. It's hurtful to the people that are around you. And this is why we do everything we can to provide help and support and love and resources to those who are dealing with mental anguish, relational anguish, who are dealing with thoughts of suicide. We come alongside as a church family and as friends and as people who care deeply about this. And I know there are so many more conversations to be had about this. I know that in our time today, it's limited. But when we're struggling 
and we're hurting and we know someone who is, I, I pray that we can just do what David did in Psalm 31 and we can lament to the Lord, cry it out, bring it to God and trust in the Lord and say to him, into your hands, I commit my spirit. My times are in your hands, God. I'm not going to take them in mine. I pray that you, like David, could hope in the Lord and be strong and take heart, not in your own strength, but in his. Hope in him. Hope can be an acrostic. Hold on, pain ends. Hold on, pain ends. Put your hope in him. Look, you're not wrong to desire for the end of this world and to, and to embrace the one that comes. But one day, it will come in God's timing. But in the meantime, God has stored up good things for you, according to Psalm 31. In fact, even in Job, chapter 42, 5, Job says, My ears had heard of your greatness, but now I've seen it with my own eyes. Sometimes you hear about it, but you're not seeing it, you're not feeling it, you're not experiencing it. But God is storing up good things for you. If you would hope, hold on, pain ends. If you could lean and trust in the Lord and in his timing, he has good things for you. He has a plan for you, a purpose for you, not to harm you, but to give you a future and a hope to give you life. I don't want to make short-sighted decisions because just because I haven't seen it yet. God's about to do something good. So I'm going to trust him. I haven't seen it yet. But Job saw it. Throughout God's word, we see others who see it. And so we're going to lean into that. We're going to trust him in that. We're going to help people in this. We're going to come alongside. It's so needed. And so today, we're just going to have a time of prayer. In fact, if you would just stand to your feet right now, I, I want you to be available and prepared to go and pray with someone today. And so down at the sides of the front of the stage and on the sides of the room today, our prayer team is here, available to pray with you, pray for you, intercede for you, to pray for someone that's on your heart and on your mind right now. You can go and pray with them right now. I'm going to, I'm going to invite you to join them in this prayer. I also want you to know I'm going to have some people with me at Decision Point today. People like uh, Drew Shoemaker, the medical director of Burl's Behavioral Crisis Center. And he's also the director of addiction services at Burl. And part of our Celebrate Recovery team here at, Le- at Northside and one of our members here. Uh, Marion Conover and Kim Bryant, they are licensed professional counselors. They're just going to be at Decision Point joining us out here today for anyone who may want to talk. Maybe whether it's a personal struggle that you've been through or you're in now or someone you care deeply about and you want to get some resources, some help, come talk with us. Right now, don't put it off. Don't wait. Why would we? We can come now and talk together. We want to invite you to do it. So we want to do that. Maybe you can get some more resources here. and, And we're going to sing and put our hope in Jesus. And then as you leave today, you have an opportunity to give so that we can bring hope of Jesus to this world. And you can gift at the boxes in the back of the room or the information on your screen as we support the ministry and the work of what Jesus is doing here in this community. But let this be a moment right now where we pray together, we share together, we talk together, and we'll meet you right over here.
Thanks for joining us this morning, Northside. Before you go, make sure you check in and let us know you were here. Text the word CHECK to 417-233-1200. If you want to respond to today's service, you can do that online through Decision Point. If you want to know more about baptism or becoming a member, you can request more info at northsidechristianchurch.net slash decision. This is also the place to find out about our life groups, find out what sort of service opportunities there are, or if you just need to get in touch with a minister. And if you're online, you probably use social media too. Make sure you're following along with Northside on our Facebook page, Instagram account, YouTube channel, or Twitter. We are glad that you chose to join us this morning. As we head out for the week, let's make sure we take the love of God with us. Take good care of each other, Northside.